Remember, what we're going through is we're going through uh, um, just a very few of the types of arguments that people make in trying to undermine uh, the Word of God. Uh, they do so, this, and these attacks come from non-believers. It comes from individuals who say that they're believers. It comes from individuals who uh, have nothing to do with Christianity, and it also comes from individuals who are connected to Christian organizations and churches and uh, those kinds of things. And so the bottom line is, is that um, we need to be aware uh, of these kinds of things because uh, if we're not, uh, they are successful in undermining the faith of some and also preventing others from coming to faith. Remember that often individuals who buy into these arguments, and the reason why I say it that way is because I, I believe that as you examine them, you'll see that a lot of these arguments or the line of reasoning that is used really is extremely weak. And so individuals are drawn to these, though, because they, they're looking for anything to grab onto to diminish Christianity. It goes right back to Romans chapter 1. Man does not want uh, to think about God. He doesn't want to think about the knowledge of God. He doesn't want God to be in his life except when he needs him. You know, he, he kind of wants God on the shelf. When you need him, you take him down. When you don't need him, you know, you just put him back. Uh, that's, that's what people want, I guess I would say, maybe at best. Uh, but many just want, want there to be no deity at all for whatever the reason. And that's just man's natural state. He, he lives in rebellion to God uh, and the idea, really, of God. So in 2 Kings, this is where uh, the individuals will say that there are some contradictions in, in the Bible and because of these contradictions, that then renders the entire Bible useless. Uh, that it does not contain truth because it can't be trusted. So the example would be this. 2 Kings 24.8 says, Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned in Jerusalem three months. Then in 2 Chronicles 36.9, and just so you know, a lot of times uh, there's overlap. When you go through 1 2 Samuel, 1 2 Kings, 1 2 Chronicles, sometimes there's... Uh, stories about certain kings that appear in each one of those different books as they go through the various history and whatever. And so when you compare them, sometimes you come up with what appears to be a difference. So in 2 Chronicles 36, 9, it's speaking of Jehoiakim, and it says Je Jehoiakim was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months and ten days. So there's a problem. In 2 Kings, he was 18 years old when he became king. In 2 Chronicles, he was eight years old when he became king. As we go, see, there you go. The Bible can't even agree on something as simple as that. Therefore, it cannot be trusted. Uh, so, what we do is, uh, as I've said many times before, when these things happen, just take a deep breath and you relax. And say, okay, let's look at the larger context. So, in 2 Chronicles, um, we'll begin reading in verse 5. And that will help us to understand a little bit about what's going on with, Je with, Jeho with Jehoiakim. And so it reads this way. Jehoiakim was 20 and 5 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in fetters to carry him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried other vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, and his abominations which he did, and that which was found in him, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And, Jeho and Je Jehoiakim, his son, reigned in his stead. Jehoiakim was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And when the year was expired, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the goodly vessels of the house of the Lord, and made Zedekiah his brother king over Judah and Jerusalem. So again, in Second Chronicles, we have Jehoiakim, who's eight years old in the timeline of Second Chronicles, um, and he becomes king. In Second Kings, we have a different timeline. So let me read verse 6. Earlier, what you have there in your notes is verse 8. But if you, if, you're, if you open your Bibles and you back up to verse 6, it says, So Jeho Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, 
and, Jeho and Jehoiakim, <laughs> his son, reigned in his stead. So here's the difference. So when it comes to, Je to Jehoiakim, which that ends with the letter M as a monkey, that's the dad. Jehoiakim is the son, where in one passage it says he was eight years old when he began the reign. The other one says he was 18. So, yes. Well, that's wrong. It's the King James Version. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, not, the, the NIV is a quick rundown. Okay, uh, I'm just saying. Yeah. The, uh, when it comes to translations, the New American Standard, New King James, English Standard Version, um, so American Standard Version. So the King is, I mean. Well, let me finish. Okay. Those, those, those translations do their best to translate word for word. The NIV is what's called a dynamic equivalency. And so they're not trying to translate word for word. They're trying to translate the main idea. Okay. Now, when it comes to dynamic equivalent translations, the NIV is the most conservative. So it's one of the few you can actually, you can really trust without worrying about it too much. Because well, you know, there's like 29, 30, 35 different translations that are out there uh, with and they all, many of them have their problems. That dynamic equivalency, has, its main problem is, is because you're trying to translate a thought that leaves too much room for the translator to put their idea in. If you're going word for word, there's less room for that because it can always be checked easily. Um, and so that's the main difference. Okay. So now, it doesn't mean that you have to throw away your NIV. Just know that. So and so you're good. Uh, in Second Chronicles, he was eight. Okay. It says he was eight years old. Okay? All right. So, in Second Chronicles, it doesn't mention Jehoiakim's dad dying in the timeline, only, when he, only that he was captured. All right? So, here in Second Kings, it says he died, because that's what it meant when it says, so Je Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Je Jehoiakim, his son, reigned in his place, and the king of Egypt did not come, out, come again out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king and reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was uh, Nahashta, the daughter of uh, El-Nathan El of Jerusalem. So here's the, here's the deal. So Jehoiakim begins to reign twice, in two different capacities. The first time, he was being named an heir, and he was given the power and authority to reign in his father's stead while his father was reigning. The second time, he was named king after his father died in captivity. So that's not an unusual thing. So when you look at Jewish history, and they're not the only ones who did this, but there were times when, for example, let's say the king became incapacitated. So he wasn't dead, but he can't do certain things. He's still the king. His son then takes the throne, and he exercises authority as a king, and he's referred to as the king. But he's not the king because his dad's still alive. So in your record-keeping, some people who keep records would say the reign started when, his, when that person's dad became incapacitated. Others would say, well, no, he was really reigning for his father in his father's place, so his reign actually began when his father died. Neither one is wrong, they're just different. And that's the idea, that's what's going on. All right, and so if you, if you and most, here's what's strange to me, not really, I guess people try to deceive us. Most individuals who articulate this argument and say, see, he's 18 here and 8 over here, they actually know that. They know that. So when they're telling you that there's this contradiction, they actually already know that it's been resolved and that it's, that it's not really a contradiction. But, that's, but what's the point? The point is to be deceitful. Right? We, we see politicians doing that all the time uh, uh, in different ways by leaving out certain facts or maybe exaggerating certain things because they want to make either their opponent and elections look bad uh, you know, that kind of thing, and, and it can happen, and people go, oh, I did not know so-and-so, you know, you know, ran over his wife or did this or did that. And you say, well, 
yeah, but the whole story is, and then you go back and, you know, whatever. Uh, so that's kind of what's going on here. So that's, so again, we have to just have to remember that, that the desire to deceive is really, really high. And this is not an honest mistake made by those who are trying to point out some of these inconsistencies or what they say are inconsistencies. Uh, and so we, we just need to remember that um, when it comes to these things. Again, I, do, I don't think it's wrong uh, for us to have a stance, which is this. So as a Christian, I believe that everything in the Bible is correct. So if you point out to me an error, I'm still going to believe the Bible is correct, but I want to be intellectually honest. So I am going to look into the Bible to see if that can be resolved. Now, if I'm intellectually honest, I'm going to try to look at everything, so, and I, I don't want to pretend that I've solved it. I want there to be an actual solving of the problem. At the same time, what should take place is the individual who has found the supposed error, if they're going to be what we call, again, intellectually honest, they also want to look at all of the evidence to come to a right conclusion. So they should be able to say, yeah, I know that I said that was an error, but after further research, I discovered that it's really not an error. It's this. It's just that part often just it doesn't happen, um, especially when it comes to the Bible. People begin to do this in other areas of life, but it's part of the, uh, it's part of the nature of man, for whatever reason, to be deceitful um, and to try to undermine, in this case, undermine Christianity. And God says we should expect this kind of thing. Uh, so again, almost always individuals who, are, who may point these things out to us, they may not be aware that they're not being, again, when I, when I say intellectually honest, I mean, you're just being honest with yourself about the whole matter. And most individuals are only repeating what they've heard or they're repeating what they've seen. Like, you know, you go on the internet and you can see sometimes before you click on a website, you see the first two sentences. So they don't even bother to click on the website. They just see the first two sentences. They go, oh, see, I knew the Bible was wrong. <laughs> uh, they're not being very honest <laughs> when it comes to that. But that is what's taking place. So this isn't, a, this isn't just a concocted idea that somebody kind of taped together to pretend that we've solved this issue. A lot of historians, both believers and non-believers, will tell you that this kind of record-keeping was very common, not only in the Bible, but what we might even call in Bible times. You know, that we see that in Egyptian records, and we see that when it comes to Egyptian pharaohs and kings and whatnot. We see that in the records of, of other places where they have dynasties and that kind of thing. Uh, and then in, in some of those uh, places, like uh, we know when it comes to the war records of the Egyptian pharaohs, there'll be certain battles that they never talk about. It's because they're wiped out, <laughs> you know? So that they'll list of this king, maybe a pharaoh was a great warrior, and they list all these battles that he won and just destroyed the enemy. And, but, and, but some of the historians go, okay, there's some missing here because there's this battle and this battle. And we figured out why it's not there. It's because he lost. <laughs> and so, you know, <laughs> nobody wants to talk about your losses. Uh, kind of a thing. But again, that's why you want to get all as many different resources as possible uh, when it comes to uh, finding out really what took place in history. Uh, th th those kinds of things are really important. Yes, sir. Pastor, can yeah. you explain that again in a concise, much less words? <laughs> <laughs> Everything I just said? No. <laughs> <laughs> the way I got it was No, he didn't even king, yeah. and, he, and he ruled. Yeah. Uh, and then they were taken away into Babylon. Right? His dad was in the beginning. Okay. Yeah. Oh, he wasn't taken there? Not till later. Okay. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is both, all the accounts say that Jehoiakim ruled three months. All right, so after his dad died, he ruled three months and ten days. And that was when he was reigning solo. So before, he was reigning together with his dad for years, um, from to age 8 to age 17. He and his dad both were, were ruling as king. Then we turn 18, when his dad died, he ruled, he ruled for three months and 10 days.
That's what took place. Does that make sense? I want to get it where I can explain it to somebody else. I guess the easiest, well, the easiest way would just be to simply say this, is that he began to co-reign with his dad when he was eight years old. And they both reigned until, together, in whatever capacity that worked out, but they both reigned together until he was around 17. At some point when he was 17, his father passed away. And at 18, he was named the king, and he ruled for three months and 10 days. And that was, a, that was when he was ruling solo. Yes? And so even though he reigned with his dad, those years were never counted. They, they're, they're, counted for, they're kind of counted for, the, in most places, they'd be counted for the dad. So that's why it's only three months. And yes. Yeah. That's, how, that's why they would do that. Because technically, his dad was the king. He was co-regent. And it's kind of, you know, we would do the similar thing. Okay, let's say that Biden became incapacitated, and so Kamala Harris becomes president, you know, because of whatever. And let's say that she then is president for ten, uh, one year. And whatever's going on with him, he recovers. Okay, so most of the time, they would say during the Biden presidency, even though he may have only reigned three years out of the four, it would still be given his name because who's the president? He is. The same idea. Now we also now we do tend to live today, as most people are aware of, we live in a very digital and precise age. So we all think very differently. So today most people we don't put up with, oh, it was the Biden presidency. We go, oh no, no, no. He only did it three years and we would go into all the detail. One year she reigned and they would they would they would get into all of that because we just were, you know, it's kind of like how when you look at, people don't even wear watches anymore, I guess, unless it's the Apple watch. But you look at your watch, we used to say things like, well, it's 7.15. Or we might say it's, it's a quarter after seven. So, and, and if it was a quarter after seven, it could be 7.17, but we would still say it's a quarter after seven and nobody would say, you're lying to me, right? But today, we're used to what? Digital everything. So when someone asks you what time it is, we go, oh, it's, it's, uh, it's 717. No one thinks nothing of it. When I was a kid and you talk like that, people go, what, what kind of weirdo are you? Because nobody, everyone's like, I, I don't care if it's 717. Just tell me it's a quarter after. Um, uh, so that's just everything has changed. So when it comes to how we look at things like history, uh, you know, people are like, well, you got to give all the details because if you don't, it can be misleading. Kind of, uh, but not really. But the thing is, is we, we actually have more information. Uh, what we still have to be careful of, both with regular history and then including biblical history, is you do have individuals who not only seek to revise history, they actually believe that it's the right thing for them to do. So they don't have a conscience, not everybody, but many. They don't have a conscience about that. Um, and uh, you know, they're driven either by an ideology or maybe a political ideology, or maybe they have a certain moral outlook, and so they either want to overlook certain things or you know, emphasize certain things. Yes? Pastor, would that be considered sinful to do such a thing? Well, we would consider it to be deceitful, so yes, yeah, sinful, yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, that's where, again, that's where people get in trouble or can get in trouble. But again, we, if, if you're on the right side of whichever ideology is popular, no one's going to say anything. Um, and it's very unfortunate because everybody, not everybody, but many people have, they have an angle. There's something they're trying to communicate or they're trying to control or influence the way you think. And so they believe they're justified in using either manipulative or deceitful tactics. So I tell people, like, when I'm, okay, when I teach the Bible, just so you guys know this, I will say it openly. I am trying to influence the way you think. Absolutely. I am trying to do that. I am doing my best to never do it in a manipulative way. I'm not trying, I'm not going to keep information from you uh, to try to get you to think a certain way. I want to convince you uh, with as much information as I, as I have available to me. Uh, so sometimes when we're talking about other philosophies, I don't ever heard this, but sometimes people will say, well, 
You know, Bob was comparing, let's say Bob was comparing Mormonism to Christianity, and he was trying to show that Mormonism is not Christian. But the problem is, is that Bob was using a straw man argument. So what that means is, with a straw man, if you just think about it, a straw, if you have a man made out of straw, you, you put straw into some clothes, it's not very strong. So the idea is I use the flimsiest argument anybody can make to support Mormonism, and I would use that and say, see how stupid that is? And I destroy it because it's a, it's a straw man argument and try to show you that Christianity comes out on top. But if I'm going to be intellectually honest, again, I want to be forthright, that I'm going to present to you the best way I can, the absolute best arguments as to why Mormonism is a true religion. I'm, going to, I'm at least going to give you what they actually teach. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you what some far-out Mormon teaches. I'm going to tell you what the Mormons actually teach. And then try to tear it apart logically and biblically to show you that not only is this what they believe, this is how we know it's wrong. All right, so I am trying to influence the way you think. So in that scenario, I am trying to get you, I would say, to understand and to believe that Mormonism is not Christian. But I'm going to do so in an honest way. Because the last thing I would want for you to do is to find out well, you know, I always thought Mormons believed this, this, and this. You know, that's what Bob said. And then I find out they don't believe that at all. So now what happens? Now that puts everything I say and makes it suspect. You might even think, well, I wonder what he was hiding. Maybe they really are Christians. So that, to me, that just serves no purpose. So the point is, is that I want to do the best that I can to present you the facts and that may sometimes take longer to work through. It requires more work on my part uh, to get ready for all of that uh, and to present it. But the point is, is that because we believe in the truth, there's, God has no fear of, of all of that. And so we should be free to do that. But you do have individuals, both Christians and non-Christians, who will take shortcuts or do something maybe a lazy way uh, or whatever the point is. Um, Maybe even to be entertaining because they want to make fun of people. I don't know. Um, it's not wrong to laugh, but I mean, it, there's just different ways to present things. Uh, and again, one of the, you'll hear me, you just, I'm sure you've heard me say it a lot. I, I use the term to be intellectually honest. I just do that a lot because I think that's an important aspect for Christians to always be that, even if others aren't. Um, and so when, I, when I'm showing you this, this is, I went to, the websites of individuals who support these things and this is what they point out and what I was I'm just amazed with is so they, they quote this verse and this verse and there's all these verses in between why they're not even dealing with the text I mean it's, it's like a bunch of buffoons they there's they got to know and many of them do but anyway uh, so that's the deal then with um, uh, Jehoiakim and the supposed contradiction that one verse says he ruled when he was eight and another verse says he ruled when he was 18, both are accurately and both, both are accurate and both are correct. So there's no contradiction there. And there's actually, uh, when you look at the arguments that people make, remember I told you there's those websites uh, or books, you know, 1001 or 101 contradictions in the Bible. Several of them are that kind of thing where the Bible will talk about one, a guy reigning when he was king for so many years, and another one saying he only reigned this year, or this, this does the age thing. Some will say, well, he reigned 27 years, and then another one says, oh, he reigned 18 years. Oh, well, which was it? Oh, time out, take a look. Ah, he and his dad ruled together for a while, and then his dad died, and then he was the solo king. And that's, so it's not an uncommon thing. It's actually very, very common. So does that make sense? Okay, all right. So, huh? Say that one more time. Do you think Judas used a rotten rope? I mean, did he hang himself or did he jump off from verses? Oh, that's, we'll, we'll get to that one. That's easy to explain, I think. But anyway, yeah. All I can tell you is yes and yes. Anyway, uh, okay. So let me, uh, so on, on uh, I went to uh, attend, 10 websites, the first 10 that came up, 
uh, when I was looking for contradictions, contradictions in the Bible or trying to prove the Bible wrong, uh, because normally when you come to the list, those are the ones that either are the most visited or those are the ones that pay the most money to be first in the list for whatever the reason. Uh, they're the ones that people would actually visit the most. So that's the ones I looked at to draw for, well, this is what they say, the way they say it. So here's this one. And sometimes they'll just put, they'll just put verses and say it's so obvious you can see it for yourself. All right. So let me read to you from Genesis and then from Romans. So people say, aha, here's another contradiction in the Bible. It just doesn't make sense, so you can't trust it. Genesis chapter 9, verse 3. God says, everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. That's after the flood, by the way. God's, you know, telling man he can now eat meat. Then in Romans 14, it says, It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. Now, I'll be honest. Sometimes when I read these things, I'm like, they cannot be serious. But this is, this is what they'll say. God can't seem to make up his mind. In Genesis, he says, everything that moves, kill it and eat it. Then he turns right around the book of Romans and says, it's better not to eat meat. So which is it? Okay, time out. You take a look at what's going on in Genesis. Uh, you know, we've had, you know, you go, through, when you start with Genesis 1, God creates Adam and Eve. They live in a garden. Everything they need to sustain life is there in the garden. All the fruits and vegetables they can eat, it will sustain man. Man sins. When man sins, all kinds of bad things begin to happen, including death. At one point, the world, as, as the population grows, the world becomes so evil that God says he's going to wipe out everyone. And we know the story. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So Noah, his wife, his three sons, their wives, they built a big boat according to the plan that God gave them. God then brought to them all these animals, put them on the boat. Uh, he flooded the earth, wiped out all the human beings. They started over. When they started over, he, told, he got uh, Noah out, and he said, look, here's the thing. You could, you're, you're, not only are you going to eat from the trees and from the ground, uh, but you basically, basically you can eat meat, which I thought was a very gracious gift of God because uh, I really enjoy meat. But he said you can now eat meat, and he also said he would put on the animals the dread of man. And so that's why, thank goodness, most animals are afraid of people. That's, that's good news, all right? Because whenever we come across an animal that's not afraid, that animal is dangerous. You know, like, so, for example, if you're walking through the jungle of India, in most cases, if you come across a tiger, he's going to run away. However, they do say this. When a tiger gets hungry, if a tiger ends up eating a human being, Something changes in that tiger, and that's the only meat he will now eat. And so they call him a man-eater, and they do that on purpose, because now that tiger is only going to hunt people, and they have to find that tiger and put him down. They don't put down all the tigers, because all the tigers don't do that, but that one does. And so, you know, thank goodness God put on animals the dread of man. Thank goodness snakes are like that, you know, right? I mean, isn't it good to know that most snakes, now if you corner them, that's on you. But normally when you're walking snakes, unless you surprise them and you know, they just strike out of self-defense, they're going to run away. Uh, which is why now, in, with this has been going on now for 20 years, in Florida they have a special problem. People let their snakes go in the wild, and there's been some crossbreeding. And so now there's a python that is crossed with what's called a rock python, uh, which is a special kind of python. And these things aren't afraid of anybody. And so they will come after anything small, like your children. And, but they're, so they're, it's a very aggressive snake. So, that, so even though we may think normally pythons are dangerous, they're not. A rock python is now dangerous. So a lot of things changed. But the main thing is, is that God told Adam, told Adam and Eve, told Noah, they could eat meat. That was great. So when you come to Romans, and you read through Romans, when you read through the entire book as Paul is writing, there's a, this is in reference to a special problem. So this is not a problem of just people eating meat. It's a special kind of meat. It's the meat that's sold at the temple markets. And the problem was is that, uh, so, it, so if we use it as an example, if you go to Kroger right now and you want to buy a ribeye, it's pretty expensive. 
to get that kind of steak. All right, but let's just say that around the corner there was uh, some kind of a temple where they sacrificed, you know, cattle to their god. And then after they after they sacrificed this cattle and they cut up all the meat, they sell it out the back door, and it's a whole lot cheaper than at Kroger. And so I would go there, and I would say, "I'll take your I'll take your ribeye, <laughs> or whatever they got. I'm going to get that." All right, so what, would ha what happened was uh, in certain cities, and Paul writes to the Romans because this is going on there as well as going on in Corinth, some new believers thought that they should not buy that meat sort of the temple and eat it because if they did, they were somehow either honoring that God or supporting that temple and they were feeling guilty. And even though, it may, in some cases, even though it was explained to them that they weren't, they still felt guilty. So Paul writes because he wants there to be peace and unity among the brothers. So the bottom line is this. He says, look. He says, so if David is offended, if he's truly offended, he doesn't just say he is, but if he's truly offended when it comes to, for example, me eating that meat, then when I invite him to my house for dinner, I don't give a big old juicy steak and say, oh, by the way, it's from the temple. <laughs> All right? You know? And then he's I can't eat it. And I go, I can. And so now all he's consumed with, I can't believe my pastor is eating that meat. And you know what I mean? He's all bound up with that. So what I'm supposed to do is either say, this is from Kroger, or maybe we don't have meat. We just have fruit salad and ice cream or whatever. Right? But the point is, is I don't want him to be all messed up with that. Now, in the long term, the goal is for him to mature to a point to where he has no problem. However, there, well, there may be some instances where that won't take place. An example would be this. If a man is raised as a Muslim, and, is, and let's say he gets saved in his 30s, his whole life, you don't eat pork. That's a sin. He becomes a believer, and he eventually learns that God has said it is okay to eat pork. But he just, he can't get over a feeling of guilt because his whole life is that way. So even though he knows what the Bible says, he just doesn't eat pork. That's okay. That's, that's not a problem. The problem is, is if he tells someone else, it's a sin for you to eat pork. Now he's crossed the line. I may cross the line if I know that he still has this problem and I keep hounding him saying, yeah, but you can eat pork. You need to eat, you know, if I keep hounding, that's a problem. So that's what he's getting at with all of this. God hasn't changed his mind. God just understands the complexities of life and some of the, the difficulties people may have. And so in here, he says, look, he says, so when it comes to some situations, for those of you who are mature, it's just best not to eat meat or not to drink the wine, all right, for the sake of your brother. And so there's no contradiction there. What we have is a very understanding, kind God who's giving us some good information on how to get along and how to do things. So there's no contradiction there. Now, we got time for this. Okay, so I'm gonna. So uh, why don't you do this? Uh, turn to Matthew 27 and also John 18, uh, and we're gonna look at two passages there: Matthew chapter 27 and then John chapter 18. Again, the idea uh, from those who say that the Bible contradicts itself that they're saying that the historical accounts of what's happening with Jesus are contradictory. And therefore, you have to throw away the whole thing because it can't be trusted. So this is one of the things they point out as being a contradiction. So Matthew chapter 27, beginning in 13, it says, Then said Pilate to him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against you? And he answered him to never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. But then in John 18, Beginning in verse 33, then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him saying, uh, do you say this thing of me or did others tell you this of me? So what they will say is, you see, in one place it says Jesus didn't answer a word. And then in the other uh, passage it says Jesus clearly answered him. So once again, the Bible contradicts itself. You can't trust the Bible, throw it away. Hmm. 
Okay, well, let's do what some people don't want you to do, and that's to go to Matthew 27 and back up to verse 11. And we'll get the rest of the story. And it reads this way. Now Jesus stood before the governor. The governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. So when we get the rest of the story, what we see going on here is really very simple. Jesus talked with Pilate. But when the Pharisees, or when the Jewish leadership were making all these charges, Jesus did not answer those charges. When Pilate said, do you hear what they're saying about you? Jesus didn't answer those charges. So now we understand the whole idea of silence. It wasn't that that one pastor says he was silent before Pilate and never said a word, and the other one says that, oh, he spoke freely. He spoke freely to Pilate and answered Pilate's questions, but when it came to the accusations of the Jews, he was done with them and didn't answer. Pretty simple. That's why when I saw, sometimes when I'm looking at this, I'm like, because when, when you look at the website, it actually, when you read Matthew 27, verses 13 through 14, uh, there's after the word, um, see how many things they witness against you, then there's a dot, 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 three periods. That means they're skipping something. All right? And, it's, and what part did they skip? It had to do because of where it came from. So it's like right there. Like, they just skipped it. <laughs> it's like, that's just so dishonest. Uh, now, now, not everything is that easy. Uh, there are some, nor, normally has to do with numbers. So, there are some things where there's some, what, what they will say are discrepancies. And they'll say like, well, again, maybe in Second Chronicles, it says in this battle, 14,000 died. And then, and maybe over in First Kings, it's talking about the same battle, and it says 39,000 people died. And there's clearly a difference in the numbers. And those take a little longer to figure out. They're, we're able to figure them out. In some cases, as I've mentioned before, um, we can tell that the man who was copying the Bible made a mistake. But it's clear, God didn't make a mistake. The scribe made a mistake. Because remember when in the beginning, when they were copying the Bible, they copied it by hand. Right? And they were very meticulous when they did, when they did that. Uh, and so when mistakes are made, we can tell what's called a scribal error. We can see it. And Christians are so honest that in most every Bible, at least if it's some kind of a study Bible, there'll be a little notation, like next to that number back in the Old Testament, and you go to the bottom of the page or the center column or the side column, depending on how it's set up, and it'll tell you. Either A, most believes there's a scribal error, or it'll say some manuscripts. We're just so honest, we tell everybody, we'd say everything right there. So you can kind of, there's no attempt to hide anything. We know that there's a problem. Uh, I took a class, I did take a few classes in college, um, and I took a class called Prolegomena, which is just fun to say. Because uh, you say, oh yeah, I had a prolegomena class. So you took a what? what? Uh, but anyway, uh, which is basically on um, the authenticity and credibility of the Bible is what it's all about. Um, and my professor said that it's never the case, what you hold in your hand, the Bible, it's never true that you have about 97% of what God said. That's never true. He said what you probably have is 105% of what God said. In other words, we have everything God intended to say, and some people added a few things, but we know where it's at. We know right where it's at, and we identify it. Um, and so again, that goes back to the honesty of Christianity. We, you know, and there are certain places where they'll tell you certain manuscripts don't have this, or certain manuscripts have this, whether it's a word or a phrase, or maybe even part of a verse. But they're always identified. So if anybody, uh, again, just kind of takes the time to look at, again, most Bibles, even if it's just a good reference Bible, not necessarily a study Bible, there would be a notation letting you know that there's uh, a discrepancy of some kind, and then you can look it up and see exactly what it is. Um, so, yes? For example, at the end of the Lord's Prayer, mm -hmm. the last phrase. 
Yes, some manuscripts have, some, some don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when it comes to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, yeah, I think so, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know that in Mark, Mark 16, most manuscripts end at verse 8, and we don't have the rest. But when you read your Gospel of Mark, it continues on. And, but there'll be a notation that'll tell you some manuscripts stop at verse 8. There's nothing wrong in what's said in the following verses, but we're not sure if that's what God gave and again, if you're reading Mark, Mark's writing what Peter is saying. It's, it's the memoirs of Peter. Uh, but uh, they're just letting you know that we're not sure that God actually put that in there. So we're letting you know. Yes? And I think in Matthew, when, uh, when the adulterers, when the adulterers got caught or whatever, that's not, that's not in the earliest manuscripts either. Yeah, there are certain manuscripts, yeah. When they, when, they, when they talk about manuscripts, just keep this in mind. Um, the Bible has the highest number of manuscripts of any other ancient document on the planet. I mean, we're talking thousands. I mean, thousands of them. So sometimes what they'll say, let's, so let's just use round numbers as an illustration. So let's say that we have 10,000 copies of the Gospel of John. And let's say in those 10,000 copies, 8,000 reference a particular story. So we would say a majority of the text have that in there because it's so many, it's possible that with the others, either it was lost or all kinds of things can happen over thousands of years. But since the majority have it, then we have it in the Bible. And again, we'll put a notation to let you know that in the majority of the text, this is there and others don't. Now, there's another philosophy, which is, well, we're going to include what the oldest manuscripts say. So let's say, we'll use the Gospel of John again, let's say there's 10,000 manuscripts, and let's say that in the 2,000 oldest ones, there's a particular story, and 8,000 of the others, it's not there. So they will include it, and they'll say, oldest manuscripts have this in there, the majority don't. Now, I'm oversimplifying it, but that's really what's going on there. So they're letting you know uh, that there's a possible discrepancy. This is what it is, you can read it for yourself, Again, whether that is included or not included actually changes nothing. Nothing's changed. A high majority, like when it comes to the supposed 1,001 mistakes in the Bible, most of those really have to do with one word and maybe one letter. And again, it changes nothing. One guy, uh, what he, well not one guy, several have done this. They've actually gone through and they said, okay, so let's eliminate every single word, verse, or passage that is supposedly has a contradiction. If we eliminate all those from the Bible, what will change in the Bible? They took all that stuff out, nothing changed. The, method, the, the message is the same, all the evidence is the same, nothing changes. So, and that's really very important. Uh, when it comes to other ancient manuscripts, uh, of other religions, they don't, they don't have that luxury. Uh, either they don't have, they have very few, if any, uh, ancient copies, and sometimes there's wholesale changes. I mean, like, tons of stuff changed. And, there's, and the discrepancies go against what we know to be true of history or whatever else happens to be the case. Uh, so the Bible, so even, even uh, when I say, when we, you know, when we talk about those kind of things and we say secular, uh, academics or secular scientists will say certain things. The reason why we point that out is we're not saying that the secular scientists or academics have greater authority. What we're just simply trying to point out is that those are individuals who don't have any skin in the game. It doesn't matter to them if the Bible is true or not. They don't care. They're not Christians. But they are recognizing that when it comes to just ancient documents, the Bible is really the most amazing ancient book literally in the world. There is nothing even close to that. Like I said, there's thousands of manuscripts. The closest we have, there's something written by, I think it's, uh, no one doubts that Plato wrote a book called The Republic. Do you know how many copies we have of uh, going back in time? Two. Only two. And they're both incomplete. Someone else finished it. I don't know who finished the book, play, I don't know who finished The Republic, but it wasn't him. At least what we have was written by him. No one doubts it was written by him. 
the Bible we have thousands. I mean, it, it's just no comparison. Yes, Mr. Ron. Um, you said there's what, 29 or 30 Well, I mean, there may be more, but yeah, there's a whole mess of them. And uh, how many of those came after the King James uh, version was... Uh, Most of them, because the King James was at 1600s. You only have a few translations earlier than that. I mean, you do have some. You know, there's Wycliffe, and there's the Geneva, and then there's, some in, then there's some of the other translations that were into either German or, you know, whatever. Uh, but a majority of those came after. The, and the attempt, the attempt of most of them was, uh, at least the stated attempt, was to make the Bible easier to understand. Um, huh? Well, it was, the, it, was, it was to put the Bible in the common man's language, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, but I guess the difference would be the scholarship involved and the time they took. Just like so when it comes to like the other ones that we, that we recognize as being important, New American Standard, etc., the scholarship is insane. Some of the others, they're, they're pretty sloppy. Um, what was the American Standard translated? Hmm, 1904, or maybe 19, it's, 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 it's early 1900s, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, most, almost all scholars would tell you that the most accurate word-for-word translation of the Bible is the New American Standard. That's, that's the most accurate. That's why a lot of preachers will use that when they study, because it's the most accurate one. doesn't mean the others are bad. It just means it's just, I mean, we're talking like, you know, one is 99.9%, the other is 99.7. So I'm going with the one that's 99.9. You know, that kind of idea. Um... And then, of course, there's different manuscripts. Like, so, so the manuscripts that the King James is based on is called the Texas Receptus. The New American Standard is based on a different set of manuscripts. So that's why, and sometimes you'll see, again, in translations, they'll, they'll have a letter to tell you which grouping of, of manuscripts they came from. The Dead Sea Scrolls went a long way in helping us to understand that what we have is just true. I mean, it just it verified it verified the accuracy of, of hand because people used to say, "Oh, when you there's there's too much room for error when you when you're copying by hand." And there's and they would just say in general, "There's all kinds of mistakes in the Bible." When the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and began to be examined, they realized the unbelievable accuracy of the Old Testament writings. So, for so let's just use for example, so let's say we have, a, uh, we have several chapters of the book of Isaiah, and, we have, and what we are looking at was, uh, let's say it, it was a copy, and it was around 100 BC. And then they find the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they find one from 800 BC, and they compare them, and they're exactly the same. That blew their mind. And that's when a lot of secular academics said, you know what, the Bible is a credible book, you know, at least as far as its accuracy. Um, and they, they, some even use the word miraculous, even though they don't, even though they don't believe in miracles. Um, so the Dead Sea Scrolls was a, was a huge find. And if you know the story, it was an accident. Some, some shepherd boy watching his sheep climb down into a cave, saw this old pot and all these manuscripts, and I, I don't know if he took one out or if he just told his dad, and his dad told somebody, and then you know, a bunch of you know, yahoos came and just said, oh my goodness, this is the most amazing, significant find we've ever had in the history of archaeology. <laughs> you know, so it was a big deal. Uh, but that's, to me, that's just the providence of God saying, oh yeah, man needs to be reminded of how good this is. Here you go. Go look in that cave and look what was, what was preserved for you. <laughs> So even though sometimes archaeological readings can be kind of uh, boring, you know, at least get the, uh, the video presentation. <laughs> we get that all cut out. And uh, someone gives you the short story, and you can see how amazing it is. Um, if you ever get a chance, you, I, don't know if it's, I don't know if it's Prime or Netflix, uh, but there are 
three different uh, two-hour documentaries that are done really, 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 really well. Uh, what are they called again? What's that? What's that? We went to the theater to watch them. Oh, um, uh, patterns of evidence. They're called patterns of evidence. There's three of them, I think, uh, and they're. I mean, they are great. And it's not like a normal documentary, which sometimes can put you to sleep. Uh, even though they deal with some heavy stuff, it's just so well done. And so, patterns of evidence. Watch it, and then after you digest it, watch it again. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's pray, and we'll go through a few more next week and, and begin to wrap it up. Father, as always, we are grateful, Lord, that uh, your word has withstood the test of time. We are grateful, Lord, that your word, word has withstood the attacks of man uh, through the centuries. We thank you, Lord, that as man has tried his best to find flaws and mistakes and uh, indiscrepancies in your word, man has failed literally for a couple thousand years, desperately using all of his brain power, trying to find a way to discredit the scripture. And yet, Father, in the end, what continues to happen is the scripture not only comes out being verified, but in some cases, there's even more evidence to show us that what we have is true and can be trusted. And for that, Father, we thank you. And so we pray, Lord, that our confidence in your word would grow. And that as a result of that, Father, that we would even be more energetic and desirous to read your word and to understand your word and want to live out your word. So, Father, we ask that you give to us a great love for the Bible a desire to understand the Bible and to recognize that it is your revelation to us. Father, we ask now that you, that you will bless us as we bring our time here to a close. We pray, Lord, that you will uh, keep us safe as we go home. Help us, Father, to continue to lean upon you and to be willing to be used by you in the lives of others to encourage others either to come to Christ or to continue to grow in their faith. We do thank you and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.